you got your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. And we are going to be in verses 21 through 35. Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35, and the parable of the unforgiving servant. The parable of the unforgiving servant. And we're going to be here for just a little while. Um, I'm going to begin this morning with a story about a man by the name of Simon Wiesenthal. How many of y'all have ever heard of Simon Wiesenthal? He was... He became famous after World War II. He was known as the Nazi hunter. Um, He was, uh, um, you know, would spend most of his life after World War II tracking down Nazis, and they've they've opened the Simon Wiesenthal Center in Los Angeles, named after him. He was a a Jew living in Poland in 1939 when the Nazis invaded. And for the duration of the war, from 1939 to around 1945, he spent... Uh, he basically was imprisoned and survived four different concentration camps. And um, near the end of the war, he was in this, this last concentration camp, and the war was going bad for the Germans, and they had converted a building in the concentration camp, had converted it over to a hospital to treat uh, 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 German soldiers who had been, who had been wounded. And Wiesenthal, as part of his job, or one of his jobs there, excuse me, at the, um, at the concentration camp, he was assigned to this hospital. He was a janitor. He had to take out trash and clean the floors and things like that. Well, one evening, he was at the hospital. He was working, and he's telling this story, by the way. He's working, and a nurse comes and gets him, and she takes him to the bed of this German SS trooper. It was a young man. He was about 20, 21 years old, and he had a really bad head wound. The doctors had told him he'd probably only live about three or four more days. And, and so the nurse takes Wiesenthal and she leads him to the bedside of this, of this German SS trooper. And the German SS trooper reaches up and he grabs Wiesenthal's hands and he begins to tell him that he's about to die. And before he dies, he wants forgiveness from a Jew. It turns out this, this SS trooper had been part of this battalion who had literally gunned down thousands, uh, maybe even hundreds of thousands of, of Jewish men, women, and children. Uh, that, was, that was the job of his battalion, to find Jews and to kill Jews. And so here he is, he's laying in this hospital bed, and, he, and he's been told he's probably going to die, and he wants forgiveness from a Jew before he dies for what he's done to Jews. And in telling the story, Wiesenthal says he, 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 he jerked his hand away from that German soldier, and he walked out of the room, and he never said a word, never offered forgiveness or anything like that. Now, as time went by, Wiesenthal began to think a lot about this. And the fact was, he, he, he could not forgive, but he wasn't sure whether or not he had done the right thing. Should he have forgiven? Should he not have forgiven? He, he just wasn't sure. As the years went by after the war, he... He wrote a book, and in this book, he actually ended the book with this question after he told this story. He said, what would you do, or what would you have have done? And it turned out over the years, about 32 different eminent people, mostly of them Jewish, published uh, replies to this question, what they would have done. And the vast majority of them said, you did the right thing. That that Jewish soldier, for what he had done in killing all those Jews 
didn't deserve forgiveness. In fact, one of the respondents even said this, let that German soldier go to hell. There was no forgiveness or anything like that. Now, first of all, let's not downplay what he went through, right? I mean, the fact is, if you go through something like the Jews did in the concentration camp, forgiveness is a very, very, very difficult... Forgiveness is hard anyway, right? I think C.S. Lewis says forgiveness is a beautiful word until you've got something to forgive. And all of a sudden, it ain't so pretty anymore. Forgiveness is a difficult thing in the best of situations, much less in a situation like the Jews went through in the concentration camps. And the fact is, although I'm sure many of us will never go through anything like they did, anything like Wiesenthal did, the fact is we understand his dilemma very well, don't we? Because each one of us, we encounter that exact same dilemma, forgive or not forgive. We encounter that all the time, no matter... It's really not about the scale of the mistreatment, is it? It doesn't matter if it's a small slight or a, or a big hurt. A small offense or a big offense, we all run, find ourselves in the exact same dilemma. We have to make a choice, forgive or not to forgive. And for some of us, we feel like we find ourselves in a situation, and I think you'll understand this because I did you'll find yourself where it feels like that your unforgiveness is the only weapon you have. Are you with me? You you feel like, man, justice needs to be done here. I need to be vindicated, and the only thing you've got to hold on to is that unforgiveness. And so that's what you do. You hold on to it like a weapon. You hold on to it like a way to get even, right? And we're going to talk about this more and more as we move through. Yet as Christians, is there any doubt among us what the Lord expects us to do? There's no doubt. It's as clear as a bell. God expects us to forgive. Now, here's a question. Have you ever asked yourself why? Why does God expect you to forgive? By the way, God expected Wiesenthal to forgive. It It really has nothing to do with the situation. It has to do with you. And God expects us to forgive. Now, the question is, why? Why does He expect us to forgive? And let me give you a few reasons. First of all, God expects us to forgive because it is God-like. Romans 8, 29, and we've, we've said this, it seems like since we started this study on parables, we've repeated this so many times. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. To be conformed to the image of His Son. That You want to know what you're here for? You want to know what Christianity is all about? Let me tell you, that is your destiny in this world. Your destiny, what God has destined, what God has ordained for you is that you be conformed to the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. And I said this last week, you are never more like Jesus than when you forgive. And you are never less like Him than when you don't forgive. Let me say that again. You want to be like Jesus? You're never more like Him than when you forgive. You're never less like Him. You're never less God-like than when you don't forgive. God expects us to forgive because we've been forgiven. Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. As Christians, we of all people should get forgiveness. In other words, when I say get it, that means we should understand it because we've experienced it. We, we should understand that, look, listen, we're weak, we're pitiful, we're, we, we sin, yet we've been forgiven by a holy God. 
shouldn't we as Christians more than anyone else in the world turn around and bestow forgiveness on others? Because we've experienced, we know what it's like. God expects us to forgive because it defeats Satan. 2 Corinthians 2, 10-11, Paul was writing a letter to the Corinthian church. He says this, Anyone whom you forgive, I forgive. And he goes on to say this, So that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. You see, the fact is, when you let feelings linger in your life like bitterness, vengeance, uh, retaliation, when you let those things sit in your heart and churn, you are opening the door wide open for Satan to come in. Now, let me ask you a question. Is that what you want? Do you want Satan to operate in your life? Do you want Satan to have free reign to move and and manipulate you in your life? If you do, don't forgive. Because when you don't forgive, that's exactly what you're doing. You're just opening the door to be outwitted by Satan. A fourth reason why God expects us to forgive, because forgiveness is absolutely critical in our lives. Listen, I want you to just think about this. Every relationship that is ultimately ended in this world, is ultimately ended not because of the violation, not because of the offense. It's ultimately broken because somebody won't forgive. You see, families break up, marriages break up, churches break up. Why? Is it because somebody will say, well, well, he cheated on me, or she lied about me, or he stole from me. And those all may be true. But relationships end not because of that things. Relationships end because somebody will not forgive. That is the ultimate reason that it all ends up. By the way, a lot of people are cheated on. A lot of people are lied to. A lot of people are stole from. And those, those relationships are mended. Why? Because somebody forgave. Every relationship that ultimately ends, ends because of unforgiveness. Do we all understand, by the way, there's not a relationship in the world where sin doesn't exist? There's not a relationship in the world, be it a marriage, be it a a father-son, mother-daughter, father-daughter, friend-friend, co-worker, Bible study teacher. Listen, you sitting here long enough, I'll offend you. That's just what happens, right? I'm going to say something one day that just catches you wrong. And you'll have a choice. Do I forgive or do we let this relationship break? See, every, every offenses are going to come. They always do, Right? You can recover from any offense. You can recover from any breach if you will forgive. But when there's no reconciliation, I'm telling you, it's always because somebody will not forgive. And by the way, among Christians, that is absolutely unacceptable to God. Unacceptable. There's no... You can come in and say, but... I'll say, no, there's no buts. But you don't know what they did. No, don't matter what they did. That's, we'll see that today. Unforgiveness is absolutely unacceptable to God. God expects us to live in the, in the midst of a constantly forgiving environment. That, that should be our highest joy as Christians. Now, I say all this about forgiveness this morning because that's what our parable today is, of course, all about. It's all about forgiveness. So Matthew chapter 18, if you'll open your Bibles, if you don't have any open, we'll start with verse 21. Through 35. Now let's set the context for us. If you read, if you're, you've got your Bible open there to Matthew chapter 18, if you look a little bit further up, verses 15 to 20, you'll see that Jesus is talking about church discipline. He's teaching his disciples what to do when you've got somebody in the church that is engaged in some kind of sin. 
Okay? And the first thing he says, all right, here's what you need to do. You need to go to that person alone. And you need to, you need to call them on that sin. And you need to call them to repentance. And he says, if they repent, you've gained your brother. But he says, if they don't repent, then go to them again with two or three witnesses and confront them again. And again, if they repent, you've gained your brother. Finally, he goes on to say, but if they won't, you take them in front of the church. Now, we just, by the way, we just studied this a few months ago in the book of 1 Corinthians. Um, if, you're, if you're interested, and you can go back and get the podcast and listen to all that. But this is the context. Jesus is talking to them about sin, and he's talking to them about forgiveness. Now, Peter is listening to this. He's sitting there with the other disciples, and he's listening to all this. And it says later... He comes to Jesus. He doesn't stand up right then. But later it says he comes to Jesus and he asks him a question. Verse 21. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. Now, we need to understand something about Jewish tradition and Jewish culture so we'll understand Peter's question. You see, in Jewish tradition the rabbis limited forgiveness to three times. That was Jewish tradition. You had to forgive three times. They actually take this from a misunderstanding in the book of Amos. If you get later, you can go back later and look at uh, Amos chapter 1, where, where, God is, where Amos is, is, is prophesying about the enemies of God. And you'll see things like this. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Now, I don't really know what that actually means, but it ain't got nothing to do with God forgiving three times. But they took that, and they made a tradition out of it, and they said forgiving somebody more than three times is unnecessary. Rabbi Joseph ben Yehoida wrote this, If a man commits an offense once, you forgive him. If he commits offense a second time, they forgive him. If he commits an offense a third time, they forgive him. The fourth time, you do not forgive. So that was Jewish tradition. Everybody with me? Three times. So you got to understand, Peter is raised in an environment where he's taught from the day one there's a limit to forgiveness. It's not once, it's three times, but there's still a limit. There's a boundary on forgiveness. So I'm sure when he comes to Jesus and says, Lord... How many times should I forgive? And he's got to come up with a number. And maybe he thinks, well, I'll take the three, I'll double it and add one for good measure. I don't know how he comes up with seven, but he thinks he's being generous. I want you all to see that. Seven times is a lot. He's been taught his whole life you only have to do three. So he comes to Jesus and says, how many times? Seven? That, I mean, to him, that just seems like an... Everybody with me? That just seems like... A, man, I've doubled. I've more than doubled what I've been taught my whole life. You see, the fact is, remember at this point in time, Jesus, uh, Peter's been with Jesus three years. He's seen, him, uh, he's seen him heal. He's seen him forgive the prostitute. He, he knows his heart. He knows there's, there's this heart full of mercy and forgiveness. And being with, around Jesus for three years has changed him. Right? But even so, his question shows that he's still thinking in, li- in the limited terms of the law instead of the unlimited terms of grace. Let me say it again. He's still thinking in the limiting terms of the law. Even though he's being generous by saying seven times, he's still putting a limit on things. He puts a limit on love, a limit on forgiveness, a limit on mercy. He's not moved into that 
area <coughs> excuse me, where he's walking in the unlimited terms of grace. So Jesus' answer is completely unexpected. I'm sure Peter's got no idea what's about to come out of Jesus' mouth. Look at verse 22. Jesus says to him, I do not say to you, Peter, seven times, but I say to you seventy times seven. Now, it should go without saying this morning that there is nothing binding here about the number 490. It's just a play on words. If Jesus, if, if Peter had said eight times, Jesus probably would have said 80 times eight. If, if Peter had said nine times, he'd have probably said 90. Everybody with me? It's just a play on words. Um, he's not telling us, okay, Peter, keep count. And when you get to 490, 491, by the way, if you're keeping count like that, you got bigger problems than forgiveness anyway. Right? That, that's not the point. The number is so large that keeping count, it would be impossible. The number is being used to show the unlimitedness of, of forgiveness. Because, listen, that's what this is. Unending, no limits, no boundaries, constant, as much as it takes, forgiveness, over and over and over and over and over again. That's what he's saying. There's no boundaries on this, Peter. There's no number. There's no limit. You just keep doing it. And to drive this home to Peter and to whoever else may have been listening, he tells a parable. Look at verse 23. He says, therefore... Now this has got to do with forgiveness. He just taught, he said, I'm going to drive this home. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. Now, here you have in this story, you've got an earthly king. Now, a king, of course, an earthly king, he can't do everything in his kingdom. He's not omniscient. He's not omnipresent. He, he can't do everything. So he has to delegate responsibilities to governors or to procurators or whoever the case may be. So that's what this king has done. He's got servants that he's delegated responsibilities to. And as part of their responsibilities, they have to handle the king's money. Maybe they're in charge of that county or they're in charge of that state. Maybe they're regional governors and they have to collect taxes. They have to uh, buy grain stores. They have to pave roads. They have to build bridges. They have to, they have to use this money wisely, just like a, a, a somebody here in the United States would have to do. So as part of his being a servant of the king, they have some sort of fiscal responsibility. They have to handle the king's money. And there comes a time, probably once a year, when they, they have to come in and do all the books. They have to, the Bible calls it settle accounts. And they probably do this annually. And they come in and they find this one servant who has defrauded the king. Don't, doesn't tell us how, but he owes the king money. He has, he has taken the king's money and he's done something with it he shouldn't have done. And he has defrauded the king. Look at verse 24. And so when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, when you, when, you, when you go over this parable, the first thing everybody wants to know was, well, how much money is that? How much money is that in today's dollars? Okay? Well, let me do a little math for you. A talent is actually a unit of weight. It's not actually about money. It's actually a unit of weight. A talent is 75 pounds, about 33 kilograms. Okay? Now, I'll give you two options here. It was either gold or it was silver. We don't know which one. He just said he owed him 10,000 talents. Let's say for a moment that it was gold. I went on the internet last week and looked up gold. Gold right now is selling for about 
$1,000 a kilogram. A talent is 33 kilograms. So a talent of gold would be about $1.3 million. So 10,000 talents would be $13.3 billion. Everybody with me? That's 10,000 talents. That's 10,000 times 75 pounds of gold at, at today's money would be $13 billion. If it was silver, let's take the lower end of the amount. Silver last week was selling for $525 a kilogram. One talent would be worth $17,000. 10,000 talents would be $173 million. Either way, guys, this is the point. It's a lot of money. In fact, there's something I discovered in this study that was really interesting. 10,000 may not even be a real number. In fact, in the Greek language, 10,000 is the highest number that you can express as a word. It's like you and I saying he owed a zillion dollars. Does anybody here know many how many zeros are in a zillion? Anybody? I know there's six in a million, there's nine in a billion, there's 12 in a trillion. Does anybody know how many is in a zillion? I don't. But if you want to express a lot of money, what do you say? You say it's a zillion dollars. That's exactly what the word 10,000 is used for in the Greek. So he may not even be saying here it's actually 10,000 talents. He may just be like we would say, he owed him a zillion dollars. The idea here is it's, it could never be paid. That's the point of here. It's, it's just such a huge amount that there's no way this guy could ever repay it. Look at verse 25. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had, and that payment be made. See, the king had every right to sell this man and his family and all his possessions into some kind of slavery, into some kind of servitude, and he'd get whatever he could, even if it's just a few cents on the dollar. That was his right, and that's exactly what he commanded to be done. Now look at verse 26 and 27. The servant fell down before him and said, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Now, I want you to notice something. He doesn't apologize. He doesn't beg forgiveness. He says, give me a chance and I'll pay you. By the way, which you'll see in just a minute, there's no way he could ever do that. There's no way he's ever going to be able to pay. And it says, the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him and forgave him. I love that verse right here because I want you to show you what, what's moving the king with compassion. Somebody tell me. Huh? His humbleness? I, no, in fact, I, I don't see any humility in that statement. Master, have patience with me. You owe him $170 million. You owe him $13 billion. You're never... Let me tell you, when you look at this verse, the, mass, the king is moved with compassion from within himself. It's got nothing to do... In fact, this guy's heart hadn't changed. You're going to see that in a minute. This is a nasty guy. He's not a nice guy. He's a nasty guy. But the king is moved with compassion from within himself. See, this is grace. This is un, un, unmerited, unearned forgiveness. This is just pure grace coming out of the heart of the king. It says he released him and he forgave him his debt. Now listen, Peter and the others are listening to this story. And at this point in the story, they're thinking, man, what a, what a king, right? I mean, this guy, he's owed... Uh, you know, I, I, t I mean, a zillion dollars, basically, and he just forgives him. And then this is where Jesus takes out the knife, as he has, as he as he sometimes can do. 
Look at verse 28. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and he laid hands on him and took him by the throat. Now, is this a nice guy? Is is this a repentant guy? Is this a, 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 a merciful guy, a humble guy? No, he's a nasty guy. He's not nice at all. Takes the guy by the throat and, and starts choking him and saying, pay me what you owe. Now, I want to do a quick comparison. This guy owes 100 denarii. The silver content of a denarius was about 3.24 grams. In today's market, a denarii would be worth $1.72. A hundred denarii would be $172 that he owed. If we, if we compare apples, apples, today's market. That guy owed $173 million if we look at silver and it got forgiven. This guy owes him $172. By the way, here's another way to compare the two. Remember from the parable, the laborers in the vineyard, we, we told you that a denarius was the average day's, uh, pay of a woman, of a Roman soldier. Everybody remember that? A denarius is a day's, that's basically what a day's pay. So servant number two owed a hundred denarii, which means he'd have to work a hundred days to pay him back. Now that's doable, isn't it? Not easy, but it's, but it's doable. What about servant number one that owed 10,000 talents, that owed, um, um, uh, $173 million. It turns out that one talent is 6,000 denarii. Assuming a six-day work week, which is what they worked back then, you'd have to work 20 years to earn one talent. 10,000 talents would take you 200,000 years to pay back. See, one man owes something, has been forgiven a debt, that there's no way he could ever live long enough to even pay back. The other guy owes a debt that he could reasonably repay if the guy would just give him a chance. Look at verse 29 through 30. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, now watch what he says, have patience with me and I'll pay you. He says the exact same thing. And by the way, he he actually could do it if the guy would just have patience with him. Verse 30 says, and he would not, but he went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. Now I want you to notice the difference of the heart between the heart of the king and the heart of the servant. The heart of the king and the heart of the servant. The heart of the king is moved with compassion from within himself. The heart of the servant, there's no compassion at all. There's no mercy. There's no forgiveness. There's nothing. He's just mean. Now, at this point in the story, we're probably thinking the exact same thing Peter's thinking. This is outrageous. This is, this is unfathomable. How in the world could a man who has been forgiven so much turn around and not forgive just a little bit? What, what is wrong with this guy? Who, what, who is this guy? Listen, I could not help as I reached the portion of this parable to be drawn back to the story of Nathan and David. One of my favorite stories in the Bible. Y'all, y'all remember David looks out one day, we should have been at war, he looks out and he sees Bathsheba bathing on top of the house and he goes over and he ends up sleeping with her and he and finds out she's pregnant and then he's got to hide it so he, he has her husband Uriah killed. Everybody remember, remember that story? So Nathan, God reveals this to Nathan the prophet and Nathan comes to David one day and says, David, I want to talk to you. David said, okay, go ahead. And Nathan says, I want to tell you a story about a man. There was a poor man who had one little lamb. And if you go back and read the story, I think it's in 2 Samuel, 
It says uh, he treated it like a daughter. He would brush it and hold it. And he had one little lamb. And he loved that lamb like it was a member of his family. And there was a rich man down the road who literally had thousands of lambs. And one day a visitor comes to the rich man's house. And it was tradition in that day when you had a visitor to kill a lamb and, and serve it to the, to the visitor, have, throw a big feast. But the rich man didn't want to kill one of his 1,000 lambs, so he goes over to the poor man's house and takes his lamb, the only one that he had, the one that he loved. And, and, and Nathan tells this story to David, and David, as soon as he gets to that point in the story, David, verse, uh, 2 Samuel 12, 5, said David's anger was greatly kindled. Like us in our story, right? Who, how could he do that? He, and, and David says, show me that man, I, I'll take care of him. And then I just think it's the best line in the whole Bible. Nathan says, you're the man. That's you, David. You did that. You see, we can sit here and read this story of the unforgiving servant, and we can say, who is that man? But I'm telling you, if you don't forgive, you are the man. You are the woman in this story. Because you've been forgiven everything. How could you not forgive a little thing? You see, you are the man. I am the man if we will not forgive. You see, as you and I as Christians, are, as lowly sinners, we've been forgiven a zillion dollar debt. A debt that we could never live long enough to pay. A debt that was so huge, so mammoth, that we could never repay it. And we've been forgiven it by a holy king. How outrageous is it? How outrageous is it for us to turn around and not forgive a $10 debt of our neighbor, a $10 debt of our spouse, a $10 debt of a family member. How outrageous is that? Look at verse 31 through 32. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved, and they came and they told their master all that had been done. And his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? Now, don't miss that verse. He's saying, because I forgave you, that should have done something to you. That should have changed you. Yes or no? That should have, that, you should have gone out and said, what, in other words, what should have been the power behind your forgiving others is the fact that I forgave you. But, but when I forgave you, it, it did nothing. It didn't change you. It, it had nothing to do. It, it had no effect on your life at all. And it said, verse 34, His master was angry, delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due him. Now that is the parable. This is the interpretation. Verse 35, So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. You see, remember a parable is always trying to teach one thing. You don't, a parable is not an analogy. You don't go into a parable and say, well, the king is this and the man is this and the money is this. That's not what parables are about. A parable is always about trying to teach one lesson. We'll make one point. That's the point. Jesus does not leave it hanging. He interprets it for him. So, my heavenly Father will do to you the same way if you do not go out and forgive your brothers and sisters, of their trespasses. In another passage in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus states the same thing just as clearly. 
verses 14 and 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Application this morning. Well, it turns out that Simon Wiesenthal was wrong. He didn't do the right thing. But the fact is, Simon Wiesenthal didn't know Jesus. He had never had a had experienced the forgiveness of Jesus, right? We have. If you're here this morning and you say, I'm a Christian, well, you're saying, I have experienced that forgiveness of a king. I have had a debt forgiven that that debt was so mammoth and so huge, there's no way I could ever... I, you're saying, I'm that person. Okay? You see, for us as Christians, forgiveness is essential, not icing on the cake. You can't go through life thinking, well, you know, yeah, I got a little situation over here, but if forgiveness happens, great. If it doesn't happen, well, you know, no. It's not icing on the cake. It's not, listen, I got a new favorite saying. I got a new favorite saying, and it's this. This is not a theory, it's theology. You can't just take this and say, well, you know, I'm going to try it out in my life and see how it works. And if it doesn't work, I... no, this is theology. This is the Word of God. Forgive or you will not be forgiven. We cannot overstate its importance. If we are not willing it to offer it to other people, we will not receive it from God. Now, I want to say something very clearly. This does not mean that you earn forgiveness from God by forgiving others. We know that's not how it works. What this means is that if you are someone who holds fast to an unforgiving spirit, if you are a person who, who, who will not forgive, what you're proving is that you've never really been forgiven. You're, you're showing me, you're showing God that, that you don't really know Christ. You may say you do, but your heart hasn't been changed. See, because if you really know Him, you won't spurn His way of life. Jesus said, if you love Me, keep My commandments. If you really love Him, you will forgive. If you don't forgive, you're showing that you really don't love Him. I don't care what comes out of your mouth. If, if we really trust Him, you'll not take forgiveness from, of a zillion dollar debt from His hand and then turn around with the other hand and refuse to forgive a ten dollar debt of your neighbor. That's just not the way it works. If you really know Him, it means that He's created a new heart inside of you. And that heart is a heart that will be moved by compassion just as the King's heart will be moved by compassion. Just as the Spirit of the King is moved by compassion, the Spirit of God inside of you moves us with compassion. It means that you've got a heart now that's ruled by grace, not some limits and boundaries of your own desires and your own wants and your own purposes. See, we see this in Scripture. Ephesians 4.32, we quoted this a little bit earlier. Forgiving one another, and there's these two key words, just as God forgave you. Forgiving one another just as... See, it's God's grace, it's God's forgiveness, it's God's compassion that's underneath our forgiveness. It's what empowers us, it's what holds us up, it's what moves us. So if we're walking around with an unforgiving spirit refusing to forgive, what it's showing is that that may not be there. We've we got to be very careful about that. No matter what comes out of your mouth, understand if you are a new creation in Christ, you are going to be moved to forgive. You have to be. 
So if we won't forgive others, what we are showing is that God's forgiveness is not really in our lives. Again, no matter what we say with our mouth. And in the end, we're going to be turned over to pay what we owe. And by the way, that'll take an eternity. That's what hell is. It's an eternity of trying to pay back what you owe. Later on, I'll come back with some scriptures that Jesus paid that debt. Jesus paid that ransom. Jesus paid that zillion dollars so you don't have to spend an eternity in the debtor's prison of hell paying it yourself. Because that's what it'll take is an eternity. Now, I could stop here with forgiveness. And we've talked about the parable and we could move on. But as I, as I thought about that this week, I just don't think that would be right to do. I'm almost positive that in a crowd this size, some of you are struggling with unforgiveness. You don't go through life without getting hurt. You don't go through life without getting offended. There's not a person here. You just, it just doesn't happen. And the fact is, every time you're hurt, every time you're offended, every time there's a breach in one of our relationships, you have the same choice that Wiesenthal had. Forgive or don't forgive. Forgive don't forgive. And so I think to sit here and say that we're supposed to forgive and this parable teaches us to forgive, that's great, but I think we need to talk about a few other things. Number one, what is forgiveness? Number two, how do you do it? How do we do this thing that is so hard? As C.S. Lewis said earlier, it's a beautiful word, forgiveness is, until you've got to do it. Then it ain't so pretty anymore. It reminds me of a story I read the other day this, this is kind of how we are, right? There was a story I read about a man who got bit by a dog and they thought he had rabies, so they put the man in the hospital. This was years ago. Put him in the hospital and, and, the, and the doctor, they ran the test and the doctor comes in and says, man, I got bad news. The dog is, was rabid. You've got rabies. And at their, that time, there's no cure for it. So the doctor says, you're going to die. You need to get your affairs in order. And the man, of course, is, is just despondent. And finally, he, he rallies and he asks for a pen and a paper. And he begins to work as the doctor leaves and the doctor just sees him writing and writing and writing. He comes back in about an hour and the man sets the paper and the pen down and the doctor says, man, I'm, I'm so glad you, you got out your last will and testament. And the man says, oh, that's not my last will and testament. That's everybody I'm going to bite before I die. <laughs> you see, that's natural, folks. We want to get even. We want, don't we? That's as natural as breathing. I want to get them back. You don't have to work on that. What you have to work on is forgiveness. So so what we're going to do this week and next week is we're going to talk a little bit more about this parable and about forgiveness. I'm going to close today with a few observations on forgiveness. First of all, what is it? What does it include? And and next week we'll talk about what it doesn't include. And we'll we'll cover this again. What is forgiveness? I found a definition of forgiveness that I really liked. And it came from a guy by the name of Thomas Watson. He was a Puritan preacher. He died in 1686, so he's been dead over 400 years. And he was, it was a commentary on the Lord's Prayer. And, and it was a part of the Lord's Prayer where it says, Forgive us of our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And he asked this question, How do you know when you've forgiven others? And this is his definition. When we strive against all faults of revenge... When we will not do our enemies mischief but wish well to them, grieve at their calamities, pray for them, seek reconciliation with them, and show ourselves ready on all occasions to relieve them. Now, when I first read that, that didn't do much for me. I thought, okay, that's kind of a long definition. 
But the more you looked at it, I realized how good it was because every statement in that definition comes directly from the Bible. Every statement comes directly from the Bible. First of all, strive against thoughts of revenge. Romans 12, 9. Never. Anybody know what the word never means in the Greek? Never. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. When you've been wrong, when you've been breached, when you've been offended, the Bible says, put all thoughts of revenge aside, leave it to God. That's His job. He's judge, He's jury, He takes care of those things. Number two, don't seek to do them mischief. 1 Thessalonians 5.15, see that no one repays another with evil for evil. Wish well to them. Luke 6.28 says, Bless those who curse you. Grieve at their calamities. Proverbs 24.17 Do not rejoice when your enemy falls and do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles. Pray for them. Matthew 5.44 But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Seek reconciliation with them. Romans 12.18 If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. And finally, be willing to come to their relief. Exodus 23, 4, if, you're, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey wandering away, you give it back to him. You see, this is the definition of forgiveness. When you feel that you or someone close to you has been wronged in some way, forgiveness means, first of all, you don't seek revenge. You don't return... There's two, there's two don'ts and, and... How many? Five do's. Two don'ts and five do's. Don't seek revenge. Don't return evil for evil. You do wish them well... You do grieve when bad things happen to them. You do pray for their well-being. You do seek reconciliation so far as it depends on you. And you do come to their aid when they are in distress. By the way, if you want to know, am I not forgiving? Look at the opposite. Look at the opposite of those seven things. Do you think about getting them back? Is that on your mind? Man, what, what, what if I just said this? If I just posted this? Is that on your mind? Do you think about returning evil for evil? Doing something to hurt them the way they hurt you? Are, are you wishing them bad? Do you really wish something would happen to them? And they get what's coming to them? Are, are you happy when bad things happen to them? See, that thing says don't grieve when bad things... Uh, or do grieve. Feel bad for them. But we, we, our natural thing is say, huh, they had that coming. Do you pray for their well-being? Or do you, or you shut them out of their prayer, out of your prayers completely? I, I love these because the opposites are just as true as the positives. You see, all those things point to a forgiving heart, which by the way, Jesus said, if you go back and look at that verse, your Father, Heavenly Father will do the same to you if you from your what? Heart. See, it has to be real. It can't just be something comes out of your mouth. Oh, I forgive them. It's got to be from your heart. It's got to be real forgiveness. That's important to Jesus. Next week, we'll come back and continue with the unforgiving servant. We'll look at what forgiveness doesn't include. And then we're going to look at how to forgive. Let's pray. Father.